Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking today about the very tenuous relationship between Russia and America. And we're looking to look at the history of it because it's never been so contentious since Trump took power in America and got the Russia investigation, which is still ongoing. And now more and more these days, we're seeing concessions that have been quietly made to Russia through the Trump administration, but they're kept they're kept quiet and away from public eye, but they're coming to the, to the forefront now. But this has not always been the case, Keith, has it? I mean, it's not always been a favourable relationship with America. No, it's a relationship really that goes back over 150 years because um, 150 years ago, the end of the American Civil War ended in 1865. The United States began its slow rise to power. It took them quite a while, as recently as the 1890s, for example. If you're a rich person in Melbourne, you'd buy blocks of ice imported from Boston, that little developing country to put into your dessert. So Melbourne was then the richest city in the world and Boston was supplying ice, blocks of ice, to the rich people in Melbourne. So it it was a slow rise. It wasn't a dramatic overnight increase in the power of the United States. But then you could say the same about Russia. So Russia is the world's largest landmass. It runs through about 11 time zones. We've only got... 24, so they they span 11. I'm one of the few people who's ever flown twice across the Soviet Union in one day uh, when I was doing a job in Habarovsk. And And then you land on the ice. And landed on the ice, (laughs) exactly it. So it's a huge landmass, largely empty, with population centres, well, like Habarovsk out in the east, and you've got Moscow, uh, St Petersburg, Petrograd, whatever you want to call it, in the west, uh, so you, you've got a, a lot of empty space there. And so you had some commentators 150 years ago predicting that the two dominant powers in the 20th century would actually be the United States and Russia. Now, that was really quite a courageous prediction for people to make because at that time, 150 years ago, the major players were obviously Britain, which ran about a quarter of the world's population, and France. Germany in 1870 became united and then developed imperial ambitions. So to be able to say, look, these two other outliers were going to be the dominant players of the 20th century would have been a very brave prediction indeed. But in fact, what happened is that both countries were drawn together in uh, World War I. Germany invaded uh, Russia um, and so became part of World War I. And then, of course, the United States in 1917 also joined in with the the Allies. It became the leader of what were called the Associated Powers. So it, it came in on the Allied side. So in 1917, these, these two countries are together, so to speak, actually on the same side, fighting this common enemy, Germany. And then a few years later, everything falls apart. So the Russians have their communist revolution and the leaders, Lenin and particularly Stalin, had a very isolationist policy. Uh, Trotsky said we should go for global communist revolution. And Stalin said, no, we need to have communism in one country. Let's get our own act together first before we try to take over the rest of the world. So Russia became isolationist. 
And then in the United States, a similar process also took place because after the Americans did so brilliantly in helping out the Allies in World War I, the Americans then said, oh, look, we've got sick of all this foreign affairs stuff. We're going to focus on making uh, America great. <laughs> to borrow a slogan to borrow from someone. To borrow a slogan. <laughs> you know, Trump has recycled all these old phrases from that period of the 20s and 30s. So America then became isolationist. And then in World War II, you get the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Big mistake. Big mistake by Hitler, which then drew the Soviet Union into World War II on the Allied side. And at the end of that year, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour. And thankfully, Hitler declared war on the United States because there's no guarantee the Americans would have declared war on on Hitler. So it's very interesting. So thankfully, Hitler solved our problems by declaring war on the United States, and that's how the United States got involved. So throughout that next four-year period, the Soviet Union takes on the brunt of the fighting against Germany, uh, not not Japan. Uh, that Japan uh, was treated as a, a neutral country by the Soviet Union. It gets a little complicated. That's a sad matter for a separate discussion, I think. But so. The Soviet Union focused on fighting Germany, um, which was always the argument that the war was going to be a bit between Germany and the Soviet Union, and that's what we get between 41 and 45. And the United States overtakes the United Kingdom as the leader of the Western world. So in 1945, Europe is devastated. Uh, even the imperial powers on the winning side, like Britain and France, are broke. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, which was devastated also by the war, is left in this very superior position because they had steamrolled their way across Eastern Europe. So many of these territories that Trotsky had said you've got to take over to Stalin in the 1920s, they actually got, thanks to Hitler, in the 1940s, like, you know, like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia um, and half of Germany. They got East Germany. So the Soviet Union finishes World War II as one major power and, of course, the United States replaces Britain and France, etc., as the leader of the Western world. And so we've lived through this period where the two major superpowers in the world are the United States and then the Soviet Union. And then, of course, you get the Cold War period between 1945 and and 1991. And in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And then we have turmoil within Russia. And those Eastern European territories, which the Russians had taken over at the end of the war, they all became independent. So Poland and Hungary, etc., are now independent countries. Um, and similarly, the Islamic belt along the bottom of Russia, uh, all the stands as they're mm, called, mm. Kazakhstan, etc., which the Russians had taken over in the 19th century, then also became independent. But even so, even today, Russia is still the world's largest landmass, even though they've lost so much territory. They're still number one when it comes to sheer size of population. But, of course, it's a population which is somewhere of the order of about, I don't know, 80, 90 million people, which is about a quarter of what the United States has got. And their economy isn't that strong either, is it? No, the economy is very weak indeed. Um, it's basically an economy run by thugs. So if you're on the winning side, you're doing very well. And, of course, if in parts of Australia, you get to see some of those Russian criminals uh, uh, 
who are behaving badly as well. They come out to Australia, they go to they own large houses in England. Although it's interesting, the British government in the last few months has actually clamped down on some of those Russian entrepreneurs. I won't make any comments about their criminality. <laughs> entrepreneurs, come <laughs> They're on. Russian entrepreneurs. And the British government has now introduced what are called unexplained wealth orders. So if you're suddenly wealthy and you're generally a Russian and you can't explain your wealth, then you can't stay in the UK, particularly London. Yeah, right. That's where they tend to live. Yeah. So it is interesting that the ordinary Russians are having a very hard time of it now and yet um, uh, Putin and his cronies are doing very well out of it. And Putin has been able to project this image of power and uh, seniority in, in world politics, etc. But it's actually on a very weak economic base. That's what I find so fascinating. Like, when does, why does the world, no one quakes <laughs> at Russia, but certainly they have influence and they do the reputation of Russians instills a bit of fear into mm. people. How did they get to this point? Well, I think one of the reasons is that the Russian economy is still very tightly controlled. If you go back to the old days of the Cold War when people treated the United States and Soviet Union as equals, they were not. At the time, we did not get access to the accounts of the Soviet Union. Um, With the collapse of the Soviet Union and they're trying to improve relations with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, so we got access to their books. And it looked as though the Soviet Union at a time when it was um, building international space stations, almost getting to the moon first, ahead of the Americans, it had an economy the size of Canada's. It was able to achieve this because of the nature of a centrally planned economy. With a centrally planned economy, it means that the state decides where the money is going to be spent. So if you're ever in the old Soviet Union, there was only one brand of toothpaste, um, And a central committee in Moscow would decide how many tubes of toothpaste would be made for the coming year. If they got their calculation right, everybody had clean teeth. If they didn't, you you were not able to clean your teeth from, say, October onwards. Um, So, But it was a centrally planned economy. So the Soviet government could say, we will put our money into nuclear weapons and into, say, um, basic health care, which was very good in the old Soviet Union. Um, we will subsidise the arts. That was part of their civilizational mission. Right. Because the Soviet Union believed that they were creating, to use a quaint phrase, a new Soviet man. In other words, a human being who would be different from that of that you saw in the decadent West. We were interested in sex, drugs and rock and roll. So the new Soviet man would be someone who went to the Bolshoi, who went to the opera, who read long Russian books, etc. Um, that was their civilizational mission. They really did think of themselves as being culturally superior to the United States. And, and they just had, they were able to put their money into it. So an ordinary Westerner going to see the Bolshoi would be charged a large sum of money. For a person who is Russian, you'd be able to get a ticket for a few coins because it was subsidised by the state. So this this is how the Soviet Union tried to create a role for itself as being different from the United States. And they could get away with it for a while because it was a centrally planned economy. In one of my books on globalisation, I actually argue, this is before Gorbachev, well before Gorbachev came along, 
I argued that the Soviet Union would not be able to cope with the internet. Now, the internet was then just beginning. And, well, I'm not sure we even had an internet, but we certainly had computers. And in Russia, in those days, in the communist era, there were no telephone directories. You either knew a telephone number, in which case you didn't need to be told, or you didn't know the number, in which case you'd be getting into mischief. So there were no telephone directories. There were no street guides in Moscow. Wow. For the same reason. You either knew where you ended, wanted to go or you're going to get into mischief. So they lived in an information vacuum. And I argued that with the onset of the computer, then suddenly information would become more freely available. Like, for example, the extent of the Soviet harvests, which were not necessarily as great as Pravda, the, the national newspaper, was predicting. So... At that point, the Soviets would then begin to challenge their own government because they were getting new sources of information. Obviously, that world is completely different now and people can get it. So you've got to find alternative ways of controlling people. And we do that through bread and circuses. We've gone to the Roman way. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about the Russia-America relationship and, Keith, we've just heard a history, a really, like a really brief, very interesting history about Russia and about its economy and, and its standing in the world. But let's talk about the actual relationship now with America because that is quite interesting in itself. It's just taken on so many different angles, hasn't it? Well, it has. And I think if you look at President Trump, when he was campaigning in 2016, uh, when he had more control over what he was saying, he was saying we should work more closely with Russia. Um, he said there was no obvious reason why America should have the hostility which it then had towards Russia. Um, and I thought that was quite a reasonable point. You know, Americans are tired of fighting other people's wars. They've got very little show for all of that. Um, and so Trump represented a fresh voice. If Mrs Clinton had become president, we would be back having more confrontations with the Russians, as we had done with Obama. It goes all the way back. So Trump was able to speak in new terms about Russia. Now, of course, one of the arguments is that he's, he's friendly towards Russia because he's in debt to Russia, and that's a separate story. Um, but the, the argument that he was making is that why can't America improve relations with Russia? And there were a number of people who said, yeah, well, perhaps it is time for that. Now, of course, from an Australian point of view, that's not a a nice thing to hear because, remember, we had the Russians involved with the shooting down of a plane which killed Australians over eastern Ukraine. And the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, said, we will bring the people responsible to trial, which, of course, he never did. Um, but there was a lot of hostility within Australia towards Russia. And there are others who are very worried about what is perceived to be Russian aggression. Uh, you could also argue the Russians are neurotic about being invaded, right? If you look back at Russian history, you've had the Germans who've had two goes at them. Um, my grandfather was involved in an attempt to put down the Russian Revolution. At the end of World War I, at the time of the Russian Revolution, the British government interfered in Russia to try to stop the communist revolution. So if you are a Russian, you are paranoid. And sometimes paranoid people really do have enemies. <laughs> and so... Russia is concerned that NATO is moving further and further east. Uh, again, the background to this is that at the end of the Cold War, um, Gorbachev agreed that East Germany 
could join up with West Germany and create today's present Germany. Now, under the World War II peace treaty, all four powers, that's the United States, UK and France and the Soviet Union, had the right to station troops in Germany. And the the UK, US and France still do. Gorbachev said, well, look, we will remove our troops from East Germany, but I want a commitment from you that you will not move NATO further east if I do that. And George W. Bush, the father of George Bush Jr., agreed to that. And so he honoured that promise. Gorbachev, unfortunately, didn't get it in writing. And then Clinton comes to power and then Clinton, in 1996, encourages NATO to move east and that then builds the paranoia within the Russians. Um, So in a sense, what Trump was doing is saying, look, we shouldn't be encouraging NATO to move east. We shouldn't be encouraging all those East European countries to join into NATO. There is an argument that if NATO moves further and further east, you're actually extending its potential area of operations, uh, which is strategically a bit risky. Um, But, of course, you've also got a military-industrial complex in the United States that loves having military confrontations. They're not bloodthirsty people. They just want to make money. Oh, the the arms? The the, arms dealers, yeah, yeah, the whole military-industrial complex, which President Eisenhower warned about. Um, But Trump, you see, in 2016 said, well, why can't we try to be friends with Russia? Um, So people voted for Trump in 2016. I think some that might have voted for him would have done so on the basis that he was going to improve relations with Russia. Uh, Clearly, Mrs Clinton was not going to improve relations. Um, But why why would American everyday people want a relationship with Russia? Um, Well, Russia has lots of resources, huge landmass, declining population, Uh, And so you've got plenty of economic opportunities. At the moment, those opportunities are being met by the Japanese, the Chinese and the Germans. So the the Americans would like to get a slice of the action as well. Um, So from an American point of view, there may be some Americans who think, well, if we can improve relations with the Russians, we will not necessarily have to spend so much money on the arms race. So what then, okay, so we've got... Trump, who we know has always wanted to do business in in Russia, yeah. <laughs> desperately. That's and that right. Many say that he ha- ha- owes has Putin has him over yep. a barrel for whatever reason it is, yep. whether it's money or business deals yep. or whatever it is, and hence why he's trying to get in, give him favour with the American government. But then why why are some of the for a lot of people listening, they might not be so clear on the on the on the history of Russian meddling around the world. Why are they so unpopular with pretty much any major Western civilised country? Um, I think that they're, as you say, they're unpopular because they're a medal and also people are just very worried about the Russians. It is a very brutal regime. I don't want to be seen as being terribly supportive of Putin. Um, It's a very brutal regime that he's operating there, as we saw with the Schiphol attempted murders in the United Kingdom. Uh, so they, they are ruthless in how they try to get rid of their opponents. But the Russians aren't the only people that do it. Who, who do it. Remember, this is again Trump in the election campaign. You know, somebody said, well, you're going to improve relations with Putin? And he says, do you think we Americans are so clean? Yeah. No, this was Trump, a breath of fresh air. No other American president has made a statement like that, admitting that America bumps people off, <laughs> which we know they do. 
They meddle as well. You know, we've got the whole issue of uh, around, surrounding the dismissal of the Whitlam government back in 1975. All those rumours. Well, were the rumours? I don't know. Oh, well, we need to have a separate one oh. on that, yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 the Russians were involved or America was Americans involved? were involved, not the Russians. No, no, it was the Americans. So, you know, America also gets involved, and that's what Trump said in this moment of clarity. He, he said back to uh, his uh, questioner in, in 2016, well, we Americans also meddle. If you're a superpower, you meddle. Well, it's like the Saudis with Khashoggi, didn't they? Exactly. But is there an argument then, that, therefore, that America hides it better? Do they cover their tracks a bit easier? Well, it bit, depends in which country up. you're in. If you're in Australia, then the idea of America meddling in other people's affairs would be absolutely appalling because of the lousy coverage of our mainstream media. On the other hand, if you're in a third world country, you would say America meddles just as badly as the Chinese and the Russians. So it depends a lot in which country you're in. America always gets favourable treatment in the mainstream Australian media. But in a lot of third world countries, there, there is hatred of America because of their meddling as well as the Russians. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I never. Th- I mean, I do. It does. It does occur to me to think like that. But often, I don't think we yeah. we don't we don't think critically. See, like we that. live in our own little media bubble. Mm. As do you know, if you're living in America, you're living in a media bubble. You know what I'm trying to do in this series is just get people to get out of their comfort zones, get out of their bubbles, and just look at the world a little differently. Because there is no one clear perception of the world. We've all got different perceptions. And what I'm trying to do is just to introduce a little more variety of how you can think about world affairs. So how likely is it then that Russia will take a place of influence in the world with America still being a superpower and UK and Germany? Well, UK obviously is on the way out. um, But Russia is certainly a major player, if only because of its resources and because it has put resources into nuclear weapons and and is generating a whole new era of new nuclear weapons. We don't know how effective they're going to be, uh, but nonetheless they are generating new weapons. So, yes, they are a major player. They are to be taken seriously, at least with countries like the UK and Germany. They're actually trying to reduce their level of defence expenditure, whereas Russia is increasing it because Putin is having to keep in with the people at home and they think of that in terms of military terms because of the prevailing paranoia and the fear of the outside world. So I fear that we're going to end up with tensions between the United States and Russia for a long time. And, of course, a third player in all of this is the rise of China, which we need at some point to look at as well. So you end up then with a a three-cornered struggle that is underway. And two of them essentially are dictatorships. Yeah. Mm, Interesting for the world order. Thank you, Keith. (laughs) Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.